when you watch animals, a cat or someone giving birth, what do they do? They find a quiet, dark place to go give birth. And often things will stop when you have too much activity. And women are very much the same way on the most primal level. Even women who chose a hospital birth, you'll hear stories and, you know, they'll say, everything was going great and then we got to the hospital and my labor stopped. Because they probably didn't feel safe. But the doctors said to them, oh, your labor stopped, we're going to start some Pitocin. And so a cascade begins. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kybert, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. We are sitting in your living room. You're not my typical guest, but I wanted listeners to hear and know your story and hear and know your expertise. We were talking before we started recording, but I'll just tell the listeners as well is the first time I was in your living room, it was the first time we met and it was dark out. And I think it was like a little rainy and it was a little moody. And we were talking about, we were just kind of getting to know each other and you being a home birth midwife. And I said, and this is the only line that I remember, the rest of the conversation is kind of a blur that if during birth, if it was too intense and I needed to transfer, that I would transfer for an epidural. And I remember kind of like a stern shaking of the finger that came up, but probably didn't, but that was (laughs) my recollection that, and it was like this deep voice of like, oh no, (laughs) my clients don't transfer for that reason. I think there was a honey in there that might be my, like, my, my clients don't transfer that reason, honey. And a pause, and then there are reasons why clients will transfer, but it's not for an epidural because they can't handle the pain. So I love just for our listeners who don't know what a midwife is, because some people don't, what's a midwife? Well, the English translation from the German would be midwife, midwife, meaning with woman, which is why when some people ask, are there male midwives? And I say there are some. It's because these are people who are with women. Ah. So there are different pathways to midwifery. And even in my profession, there's a little bit of a controversy within about what's the appropriate way. But basically, there are different avenues to enter. I happen to be what's called a certified nurse midwife. And there are certified midwives, and there are certified professional midwives, and there are lay midwives. And it all has to do with the training and the path in your training to doing this work. I didn't know there were so many. Is it like different schools? Or are there different philosophies? Certified for when midwifery sort of gained a professional stance in this country in more recent historical time, nursing was the avenue toward being a midwife, hence certified nurse midwife. Then there became, because I think in the UK, they, you don't have to go through nursing. You either are a nurse or you're a midwife. So a uh, professional path began called certified midwife, which is not going through nursing, but they go to the same school as a certified nurse midwife they get the same preliminary, they have to take the same prerequisites. I always say to be a midwife, you don't have to learn how to catheterize an 80-year-old man or do bed baths for, you know, and do hospital corner beds. But you do have to know how to start an IV and you do have to know how to... Suture? Suture and assess women and things like that. So there is an avenue without nursing. And certified professional midwife was a... There had been lay midwives. Everyone talks about Ina May Gaskin, who was the a, farm, right? Right, the, yeah, farm, the farm. Who was at one time considered a lay midwife by by apprenticeship, by just learning and passing it on, which is the tradition of midwifery through the millennia. But then they created a learning path, schools, and a an certifying exam. It's still different 
approaches, but and they have a more of a home birth orientation. And all of these don't have the same recognition in every state. Mm, interesting. I think CNMs have recognition in all the states and CPMs and CMs not. So for those people who have heard of a midwife, they might think, oh, cool, it's, you know, it's part of that OBGYN practice that I know of. But you being a home birth midwife, it is a entire different level and dimension. So I guess you could say the equivalence as a, a midwife would be what's called an advanced practice nurse, even those who are not nurses. It's um, an autonomous position. So you can be in a hospital and work along with the there's different ways that it's approached, but a midwife can have a a solo practice. And that's what I have had for over 20 years, where I see the women from the time they do their test on their urine stick to all the way through their pregnancy to their labor and through six weeks postpartum. They may never have to see a doctor. But the general populace of women don't know that. So they often will start with the doctor and say, I just wanted to see everything was okay before they looked for me. And they don't realize that we can assess that everything is okay also. They don't have to go to a doctor to assess that. But most people really don't know. I mean, I'm asked all the time when I say I'm a midwife, people say, oh, you're a doula? People don't even know that there's a distinction between a midwife and a doula. Can you create that distinction? Well, a midwife is a is a medical advanced practice. We are clinicians. And doulas take training and it's on the job training most of the time. So they don't have to have a degree to become a doula. They don't have to, you know, because we live in in a nuclear family culture. We don't live tribally anymore. It's a profession that came up, a paid profession that came up because we don't have our mothers, sisters, aunties, and everyone in the village who would come to us and support us in labor. So because of that, we now have a profession that rose up because we all need support during our labor. Yeah. When I get asked, I explain that a doula is the kind of like the emotional support and is trying to support the mother through her birth and that the midwife is the one that's going to, you know, make critical decisions and is like the medical decider. Absolutely. Right. We <laughs> yeah. do have to. I mean, we... A midwife can do everything a doula does, yeah, but it doesn't translate the other way. Yeah. Okay, so you've been a midwife for... 32 years. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I always call you like, she's the legend. <laughs> just <go. laughs> So from 32 years ago till now, if you were just kind of to give a snapshot, how has midwifery evolved? Because now it's kind of like... Well, it's interesting. My interest in midwifery went way further back. Because the first birth I ever saw was in 1971 in a log cabin in, a, in, in the hills of West Virginia, um, which began my trajectory. So when I be- decided to become a nurse, it was with the intention of becoming a midwife. But I will say, in answer to your question, that in the 80s, when I was working as a labor nurse and then as a training midwife, that obstetric practice was really good obstetrics. You didn't have the same C-section rate. There wasn't a sense of fear, even on the OBs that I got trained under. I felt like if you could go back to that time, there was a quality of obstetric care that I think matched midwifery care in how we work collaboratively. Now, of course, I trained in San Francisco, and I might have been different. You know, I know that I felt like the West Coast was a little more progressive by about 10 years than the East Coast. But I felt very fortunate to be trained by pretty mindful OBs. And I liked how they they weren't quick to cut. And probably malpractice insurance wasn't so high (laughs) then either. Yeah, I feel like, and you can speak to this, I would be very curious of your thoughts, how... 
home birth, at least maybe in New York, can be seen multiple ways. It can have a stigma around it, still like, oh, you're going to do that? Okay. And then, you know, another group of women who it's almost romanticized, like my beautiful home birth. And uh, both of them feel very distorted. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to answer your second one, I once had someone call me and say, could you help me? I would like to have you help me have my beautiful home birth. And I said, sometimes we have to change our idea of what beauty looks like, (laughs) you know, so that, that helps a little of that magical thinking that comes with that because giving birth is hard work and it's sweaty and it's emotional and it's, it's not necessarily candlelights and water births in Om. That's nice too, but that's not only. The other side is like the, I've had women be like, Actually, both my mothers and mother-in-law were like, you doing that home birth again? Are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> we, I, I really believe that we live in a culture of fear around birth. But it's not only that. Again, the whole nuclear family and, and things like that with our whole medical system, the big transitions of life, birth, illness, and end of life, are usually kept from us and put behind the closed doors of hospitals where there are so-called scholars in this. You know, we know nothing and they know everything. So we're afraid because it's all the unknown. But these are very human parts of life. And it's the embracing of all of these transitions. People want guarantees for perfection. Can you guarantee that everybody's going to be safe? Well, you can't guarantee that in a hospital either. It's a different way of thinking. We have to like rethink this. And I I say we because, I mean, I've thought deeply about this, but I'm both provider and patient. You know, I've been in both roles. And so in going back to, you know, no, my clients don't transfer for epidurals. I feel very strongly about owning our choices. And when people fear You can give birth at home. What happens if there's an emergency? First of all, majority of transfers are not emergent. Majority of transfers are not life-threatening. Majority of transfers are a labor that's long and exhausting, that isn't progressing, and we could walk if we felt like it. Nobody's in danger. The mom is healthy and the baby's healthy, and it's just that things aren't progressing. But... Even in the medical establishment with OBs who speak against home birth, they say, okay, but you have to talk about the risks to your patients. You know, they have a right to have a choice, but talk about the risks. But where there's risk, there's benefits. So if you're going to really consider where you want to have your baby, you need to consider risks and benefits both in hospital and at home and figure which, which way's heavier for you. So you may go to the hospital because you feel safer, But are you creating problems that wouldn't have been there by virtue of being in the hospital? Creating risks that weren't there, that wouldn't have shown up at at home, things like that. But this is a more philosophical conversation that asks to be had. And I enjoy going there with the people that I work with. Yeah. Why would a woman, I mean, with 20 years, why do women choose to have a home birth? I know my reason which was, I would like to avoid intervention towards a C-section if I don't need it. And that I didn't want to be on anyone else's clock. And I'm super introverted and like <laughs> lights and people coming in and out feel very <laughs> invasive. But what are some of the reasons that women choose? They want to lay claim to this experience and I use the word experience carefully because it's been condemned as saying, oh, women care more about experience than how their baby, the health of their baby. No. It is about wellness and health, and it's also about the experience. Some people say in hospital jargon or in medical jargon, birth is something to be managed. But when you think about it as something else about women, it's something women do. That may not have to be managed. Or you have to know when to manage and when to not do anything. That's the beauty, is to say, know when to do nothing. Because it works most of the time, thank you very much. And 
I think women want to have a voice. They don't want to feel like they are being directed in every part of it. Now, some people who are afraid feel like, I don't know anything. They know everything. I'll do whatever they say. But when you watch animals, a cat or someone giving birth, what do they do? They find a quiet, dark place to go give birth. And often things will stop when you have too much activity. And women are very much the same way on the most primal level. Even women who chose a hospital birth, you'll hear stories and, you know, they'll say, everything was going great. And then we got to the hospital and my labor stopped because they probably didn't feel safe. But the doctors said to them, oh, your labor stopped. We're going to start some Pitocin. And so a cascade begins. So people don't think of it in terms of it's a primal event, actually. And, you know, again, I'll bring up birth, but I'll bring up how people deal with illness you know, or even how you raise your baby. If your baby has a runny nose, do you go to the emergency room all the time? Do you have a pediatrician you can talk to? Do you use steam and drops of, you know, saline drops and different things before you panic? It's how people are dealing with end of life and how hospice began to have a mindful, life-filled end of life. So beginning life and middle, there is a level of mindfulness. And I think home birth allows a woman to be mindful about the experience and be in her body. And not to say that her practitioner isn't going to get involved in certain things when necessary. You need someone who has some practical knowledge. And they should know when to do something and when not to do something. You mentioned being hands-off when necessary and being more hands-on when necessary. When is it more important to be more hands-on? Well, I'm checking on, it can be anything from the emotional needs. So a woman who's panicking or sounding fearful, sometimes you need to go redirect her. So she's pacing and she's saying, I can't, I can't or getting tense. So you run the shower and you say, let's do that. I mean, that could be an intervention. It's not medical, but it's saying we're going to shift. And oftentimes that shift helps, or now is the time to get in the tub or something. So there's the whole emotional component, fear component, physical, how am I coping? It could also be something very, very real, like progress isn't happening. Her cervix hasn't dilated with all the work that she's doing, or maybe it's too early for it to really dilate, or she got to a certain point and kind of got stuck. Maybe it's baby's position. So you redirect her positioning. You try different things that will help with her body movement, help move the baby. So there's different kind of interventions like that. It could be that you see a blood pressure that's going up. If it's really high blood pressure, that doesn't usually happen just in labor. You see that happening in prenatal care. But, you know, do you need to transfer or is it that she's getting tense and you put her in the tub and it normalizes, you know? So there's different levels of intervention. And often, you know, it could be something as simple as walking into a birth and seeing all the lights on and the energy is really high and the woman is tired and, you know, I've gone and turned all the lights off in the house and put a woman to bed because she was so pacing that she just needed to cocoon herself. And that's when her labor took off, you know. So there's an intuitive side as well as a practical, you know, medical knowledge side. So the first time I heard this was, so for example, in the movies, the water breaks, it's, it's the energy is up, it's frantic, it's let's get to the hospital, right? And from you, I learned through both my births that the water breaks, you're going to try and go to sleep and get as much sleep as possible. And <laughs> so for the women who don't know or have ever heard that, why is that? Like, why, why do you tell the women? Well, by the time you get to the end of your pregnancy, you're ready to have your baby. You're tired. You're, you're carrying around this weight, you know, you're waiting. It, and we make a little mistake with having this due date as if it's a bullseye that we have to get to. So the day after your due date, everyone is getting stressed out, you know. But sleep is your friend. And honestly, a lot of labor progresses when a woman is, in, is sleeping. So water breaking doesn't mean she's in labor. 
of the water breaks, which, by the way, it can break before labor, it can break during labor, it can baby can be born in the sack. It can be all of that. We don't always know why. But in the early stages of labor, when women tell me when contractions are irregular, when she's still able to talk about it, I'll usually tell her, now's the time to go to sleep. Oh, I'm not tired. Because <laughs> why? Because it's the adrenaline going and she's all excited. But she doesn't realize that maybe it's going to be another 24 hours before labor is really intense and then she'll be exhausted. So it, in a way, it's preserving her energy at the same time. And it's getting her out of her head because labor, intellect doesn't have any place in labor. It's, it's primal, it's physical, and getting your head out of the way is often the way to go. And sleep helps that. Or, you know, they'll say, I can't sleep. Example, someone saying, how can I sleep? They're coming every 20 minutes. And then I had someone who said, she had a three-day labor, and I went to her house three times, and the last time she was ready to have her baby. And when it was over, I said, how did you do it? She said, I slept. I said, how did you do it? She said, they were only coming every five minutes. <laughs> so it's a different way of thinking. <laughs> for, my, for my girlfriends who have not had babies that were pregnant, I told them, you have to get really good at napping. And they're like, I don't nap. And I'm like, just, just practice, because <laughs> it will prepare you for when... <laughs> You have to <laughs> store your energy for labor. And also for when you're breastfeeding a baby. Yeah. The napping is going to be important. Yeah. Going back to, so you mentioned three-day labor. So I was talking to one of my girlfriends who was just pregnant, D.O. She's a D.O. And she was saying, you know, when we were in medical school, we were trained that after your water broke, you had five hours to start contractions. And if your contractions don't start, the risk of infection is higher and it's time to start Pitocin. And I was thinking, I was like, okay, well, my water broke and then nothing happened for the first time, first baby for like 24 hours, right? And so it didn't follow that, what the medical guideline training timeline. And I always remind myself that if I had potentially chosen a hospital birth, that timeline that had happened with my first baby would have gone into a different path because you know you mentioned a three-day labor which is very different than the five hours you're not having contractions let's let's well her water probably didn't break i mean not to say that it couldn't have but that wasn't when i say labor i'm not talking about water breaking which will always color things but there's a lot of different ways of looking at it and we know that a majority of women will go into labor w within 24 hours of their water breaking so starting pitocin at five hours may not be beneficial at all the other thing is most of the studies of course are done by by ob's and ob's do internal exams on women so a study that talks about how long do you wait in infection, a woman walks into the hospital, she gets an internal exam. How dilated is she? Even if she's not showing signs of labor. And the more, the more exams that you have, the more you are making a woman, even if you wash your hands and have sterile gloves on, you have brought something into the vagina. So the general school of thought is don't check them. If someone's water broke, and they're not in labor, they're not in labor, and they're probably not dilated. And if they are dilated, they're going to be two or something centimeters, not very much. So midwives practice differently, and midwives who do home birth practice differently. And if your water breaks, we'll say, you know, check your temperature, nothing in the vagina. I'm not going to go check unless there's an indication to check, like has labor not begun at a certain point? Or maybe you are beginning labor and things are, you know, are they progressing? If I need, I will check you if I need information, but not just out of curiosity. Because you get information in other ways. Yes. Which a lot of women don't know, well, I think. Home birth midwives sit with women in labor. Most of us could tell how dilated you are without checking you. There's ways of behavior. So 
I've had students with me, and I've just out of curiosity said to them, how dull is she? Without, just by looking at her body language, the sounds of her voice, different things, knowing that at some point we'll check her, and it's just an arbitrary number. But most OBs who work in hospitals don't sit with women in labor. They come in to evaluate, they leave. They, the nurses are with the women. So most of them don't know what five centimeters sounds. And, you know, with, in hospitals where there's 90-something percent epidural rate, you don't know what five centimeters sounds like, or eight centimeters, or three centimeters, or, you know, things like that. So I've been at births where I haven't even done an internal exam because I, I can distinguish when, you know, when someone is getting ready to push she makes a different sound than earlier. So the five-hour thing was totally arbitrary. And I don't know if it's based on any study. But, you know, in hospitals, they have to turn over the beds quickly. Labor's long and unpredictable most of the time. And even though they've put together some kind of algorithm, I usually say most babies haven't read the textbooks. <laughs> so... Yeah. <laughs> That's really funny. What do you wish women knew coming into birth? Like, do you feel like women, for example, in my own experience, DJ and I went to a birth education class that was four hours every Wednesday for like six weeks. <laughs> and it was, you know, learning counter pressure moves. And when I tell women that, they're like, what's counter pressure? And you know, you learn about, okay, this, you know, the changes in your voice and that place you go when it's active labor versus early labor. What do you wish maybe the women you worked with or women in general would potentially do before they go into labor and give birth? Take the class. Don't take notes. <laughs> Don't take notes. Don't try to memorize anything. Let it come in your ear, let things stay that wish to stay, and let the rest leave. Because when it comes time to labor, it's going to be instinct and intuition and just physicality. So it's nice to learn, kind of, but your labor is not your final exam from taking these classes. So I like the classes. I, I would like women to go to classes that support what they're looking for because there are some hospital-based classes that really advocate for the doctors that are in the hospital facility, and women are kind of, this is how your doctor is going to do it, and da-da-da. It's not as much about in the empowerment of women. But learning is important, but it's not, don't memorize anything. I mean, I could teach you counter-pressure on the spot in labor, but it's good for you to, you know, I don't want someone calling me, totally unaware. like I just had a contraction. It's like, okay, you know. A class might let you know that the first contraction is not indicating that you're going to have your baby right then, you yeah. know. So I remember asking you while I was pregnant with number two, trying to, and I don't know why I was doing this, but I was like, Marcy, what, what tools do I need for birth? Even though I had given birth, should I do some hypnobirthing classes? Should I get the hypnobirthing tapes? Is there something else you recommend? And I think your response was, yeah, you could try the tapes if you wanted. <laughs> and is that because birth is so primal? I mean, when you're pregnant, it's an exciting time and you want to you wanna feel like you're somewhat prepared for this event. That you don't need to sit through a full class, but, you know, the hypnobirthing tapes are, it's like self-hypnosis. So anything that helps you calm down is going to be useful to you. And so, you know, that's a perfectly fine tool. But not everyone feels like they need to have an absolute thing. I mean, I feel like once you're there, you're there, you know. Enjoy yourself. If you have enough of an early labor, just keep doing things. My daughter-in-law was folding laundry until things got intense. She got in the tub and then had her baby. That was with her third. That was her only home birth, though. But, you know, keep it ordinary. Just live your life until you have to focus. You know, that's different. I've had people say to me, oh, I'm not tired, but we're, we're just watching a movie. 
translate. We're sitting on the sofa waiting for labor. So they finish the movie and then they watch a second and then they watch a third and they're not further in labor. And they get tired and then they're not sleeping and things like that. So often what people are saying and understanding isn't necessarily going to be of use to them, you know. Sleep is different than saying we're watching a movie because I know that when you're watching the movie, you're waiting for your labor to progress. Right. It's interesting, just going back to what you had mentioned earlier about how OBs don't sit with the women through their labor. They're in and out. It's the nurses. And a lot of the women that I've spoken to who've given birth talk about in the hospital, their experience was great with the nurses. Even if the how birth progressed and whatever the outcome was, if they had a C-section or whatever it was, was not the outcome they desired. They say, oh, but the nurse, the nurses were amazing. Right. And it, it's That's what most women remember. Yeah. The people that are with them. Yeah. So I think in home birth, people ask me, should I have a doula because I'm going to be at home? And I say, well, you know, in the hospital, you don't realize who, that you do have available people besides your partner. Even people you don't particularly want, like the housekeeper who comes in and takes out the garbage, you know, without knocking, you know, things like that. But at home, I tell people, create your your circle of support. So it's your midwife, it's your doula, it's whoever else that you have in mind, someone who's going to be with your child. It could be a friend or a sister or someone, but everyone has to be of service to you and support you in this work. So how important is it to create an environment for the woman. Like it's basically all about the woman giving birth. Cause I've had some patients who are like, well, my sister's going to be there and my mom's going to be there. And my mother-in-law wants to be there. <laughs> it's not about who wants to be there. It's about who's going to be of service to you. When you are in labor, it's all about you. And it's not about, unless you have a big house and you could put people in the basement and say, I'll call you when I want you, you know, you do not just have people, you know, in a hospital, people might wait in the waiting room. They're not expecting to come in your room necessarily, nor will the hospital necessarily let everybody in the room. Same in home birth, but sometimes people think because it's home, anybody can come. And the women don't understand. Often women want their mothers because we do, we're becoming mothers and we want our mothers, but our mothers may not be the right one to, to be there. And we should know that. You know, when you're an adult, you should know your parents well enough to know how to set limits. And I know that because my adult son, who is a father, set limits with me. Like, <laughs> behave yourself, mom. Even though his wife invited me to all three births. But oh. I was told by my son to behave myself. <laughs> and I did. And I helped. You'd have to ask my daughter-in-law how she saw me. <laughs> But I know that I, I facilitated her having a good hospital birth with her second child in the way she would have wanted by, the, by what I said and how I advocated for her. So this is not just a party. You can invite people that you want, but know that they may not be of service to you. You know, this might be going too far, but I kind of say invite people that you don't mind having sex in front of. <laughs> not that you're going to have sex in front of your mother. Or your sister. <laughs> but it's that level of intimacy that you have to feel that you can be that free in, in, in the most primal way with the people that are surrounding you and that you feel safe and that you can let go. Which might be not that many people in your life. <laughs> Precisely. And it might not even the people you're closest to. Yeah. I don't want my mom <laughs> yeah. seeing me naked. and. <laughs> so that's why doulas... Are, are good in that way because they can be both emotionally loving and a little bit one step removed from the intimacy of a family member. Mm. Have you had experiences where dad might not be the person that was meant to be at the birth? Yes. And you know what? I learned this from one father who they already had a child and he said, and I think their first birth had a little traumatic experience that everything turned out okay but he said I'm not going to be at the birth I'll fetch you whatever you need 
When the baby's out, I'll be right there. But he knew very clearly that he didn't want to be present at the birth. And that was illuminating for me. Because nowadays, people are all saying, we're pregnant. Quote, unquote. We are pregnant. We're. We are. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's a certain school of thought of, you know, women expecting that their partners will be totally part of this labor experience. And a lot of partners don't necessarily say, oh, I don't think I can do that. They, they, they may feel like obliged to, and they're not having this dialogue. Again, in the most primal animal part of ourselves, or even historically with people where home birth was the norm, it was a total woman's domain. Men were not part of it. So there are some men who are fantastic and they, they're just remarkably wonderful as labor partners. But I've seen men that I say, maybe you should have the conversation that gives him permission to say, you don't have to be my number one here for labor. You can come and go as you please. I will have my support people. Because oftentimes, well, I'm using men. I mean, there can be a female partner too, and that's a, a different story altogether. But with the male partner, they often want to fix things, and you can't fix a woman's labor. You, you have to be able to let her do it. It's her journey, and you have to be able to support it. You can't make it better. You know, I was with one family and we ended up transferring. It was a questionable transfer. I felt like it was we could or we didn't have to, but we did. And I felt like the father took his first breath at that moment when we got to the hospital. Mm. It's not often there's an emergent transfer, but what are some reasons to transfer? The primary reason that I transfer is a labor that doesn't progress. And I ask this because I think some people assume that a home birth midwife doesn't transfer. That it's just like, it's going to happen at home and this is where, you know, and it, which creates, I think, a sense of fear. So when I tell people about my home, you know, I used a home birth midwife, they're like, oh, so like they just assume that if something happens, there's no plan or there's no transferring. And I'm like, no, 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 that is like so far from, <laughs> there is definitely plans in place. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's why home birth, I can say there is a safety part of this is because I can never promise someone a home birth. I can say you're healthy, you don't have medical problems, let's do this. But I will promise that I will be mindful and attentive and do what the right thing is. And that sometimes means we have to be in a different venue. So there's different reasons that labor might not progress. It could be a mother's exhaustion it could be a relationship with the baby's position in her pelvis. It could be a variety of things. And sometimes an epidural might be a therapeutic thing, even though she's not complaining about pain. But sometimes she relaxes enough that she can sleep and let go. And sometimes, you know, contractions can pick up. So we always have a plan for transfer. I like to know what the closest hospital that has 24-7 obstetrics and um, anesthesia. And we always, you know, get the labor and delivery phone number for that hospital wherever a woman lives. I have hospitals that have been friendliest to home birth transfers, and I like to have those options because it's hard enough to transfer, but to not be lovingly received, it makes it that much more difficult. So to have a smooth transfer is always optimal. And it's up to me to try to facilitate that. How much of birth is, or going into birth and having a vision for your birth and then always being open that the plan might change, <laughs> how much of it is a certain mindset going into birth? Because it is a primal experience, but I often, you know, with women who are pregnant and we'll just talk about who's your OB or, you know, what, what is your, you know, kind of birth plan, quote unquote. Sometimes it comes across, and I don't want to sound judging, like a little bit kind of maybe lackadaisical or wishy-washy, like, well, I'll try to have a natural birth and we'll see what happens. And if, you know, if I need an epidural, but I, I don't want one, but I'm going to try and be, you know, have natural as possible. How much of it is kind of a a mindset going in 
but maybe being open to change if there is an emergency? Well, the scenario you just put out to me is a little different than if someone was at home understanding transfer might be a possibility. Because I do find that a majority of contemporary women don't research the providers to go to to get the vision that they have who will be supportive. So women might go to any OB and then say, well, I'm going to put together my birth plan. But that will never happen with the provider they're going to, and they don't know that. People spend more time, you know, researching the car they're going to buy than the practitioner that they're going to for the birth. So birth plans, it's really your vision. It's its less a plan, I want this set up like this, saying, when I think about this experience, this is what I would like to see happen. And you need to be able to have that conversation early on with your practitioner. And if they don't give you that time, or they fluff it off, or they'll say, yeah, 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 we'll see what happens then. That's not, you can write a birth plan, but it's not going to happen. And it's time to maybe change practitioners before you give birth, when you realize that you're not being heard, or they're not speaking to you in a way that you feel you will be supported in this. I think it's hard for at least first time pregnancy. It's hard. I remember going through that and bringing that up. And I think the OB, the first response was like, oh, we talk about that when you're like 34, 35 weeks. (laughs) And I was like, oh, wait, but what about now? Like, I want to talk about it now. And then also that just in the medical system, it's like you can only change providers at a certain point that you can't, you know, if you wanted to switch at 20, 24 weeks, at least within the, the hospital system, you, you can't switch. Well, that's it. It's not that you can't. It's that they've set their policy that way. Right. And there's a real power differential here. So you don't necessarily have the practitioner and the woman able to have a true dialogue. You know, if you have someone saying, we'll talk about that later, that's a little patronizing. And it's not really listening. And the woman, I would have her be able to say the same thing that you just said. Wait a minute, doctor. This is very meaningful to me. And I want to have an early understanding of how you look at this so that I can have a better understanding when I have my vision of what I'm hoping for. But most women don't have the the comfort to talk that frankly with the person. And then there are women who have go through... I might be the third person they find because they went to this one and they, you know, and they moved, they went for a doctor first, they found a hospital midwife, and then they moved their way to a home birth midwife. So we're very vulnerable when we're pregnant. We feel we don't know anything and the provider knows more. And so you're hesitant to have like a an assertive conversation because you're feeling like, I really don't know. What if I'm saying something that's going to be harmful? Or the person saying something, if you do that, then it's harmful. And I wish, you know, we had more round circles about how do we talk to our healthcare providers? How do we talk to them? You should know that when you're going to have, when you have your baby and you're going to a pediatrician. How do they, do they treat you as you're part of the team? Or do they tell you what you're supposed to do? And say, I won't take care of your baby if you don't do what I say, you know. So we have to learn how to have a voice when it comes to our own health care and try to find practitioners who acknowledge our voices. Do you think there's more dialogue happening between OBs and home birth midwives? Because I I remember when I told my OB with my first baby, I'm going to do a home birth. And she goes, well, I'm not your backup. And I was like, oh. It was so, it was really, I was like, oh my God. (laughs) I actually sometimes think that the way that some OBs behave, they don't realize that they're pushing women into home birth. The ones who are against it are pushing women. They're saying, "I, I don't want someone who talks this way. And they move further away. If they don't find a way to have a dialogue with us and hear, you know, and even hospitals when they set up like an in hospital birth 
birth center that they plan never to use probably you know their idea of birth center is to have flowery sheets instead of you know just white sheets they don't realize it's not the it's not the external stuff and women get seduced by that they look at a nice view from their hospital window and say oh this looks nice or they have faux wood over the monitors and they say oh this looks nice and in their mind they think this translates to a homey kind of birth and it doesn't so until the dialogues can happen it's going to be very complicated and some of the most vocal people against home birth are really bringing women to home birth what do you wish women knew about the afterbirth period Oh boy, that's a whole especially podcast. the contemporary woman because I think that's a perfect. I've been trying to find the word of like, okay, the woman that sees the home birth is like kind of poshy and, you know, well, all these women magazines that show celebrities going back to their exercise routine and getting a flat belly soon after giving birth is like a great mistake. I think, you know, I make the mistake to say. Chinese culture, because I know there's multiple cultures in in Chinese culture, but the people who come from Chinese background, contemporary women, even ones who were raised in this country, in their extended family, they really get it right. With with there's rituals of keeping a woman in inside for many weeks and eating warm foods and certain kind of foods that are nourishing to the building back. Giving birth is a big thing. And even people who are looking to have home births or thinking deeply about how they birth, it's like you're looking from one side of the mountain and then you give birth and then you're on the other side. You're postpartum the moment your your baby is born. And it's a complex group of things. You're You're tired. You're learning how to breastfeed. You're trying to sleep in between that. You're learning how to read your baby. You might be sore from pushing a baby out, or if you've had stitches, that's recovering. And especially with home birth, I tell women, like, if they have their sweats on, they're sitting on the sofa, like, it's like you look like your normal self, even though you don't feel it. It's really easy for their partners to say, I'll be back in two hours. I'm going to go to the grocery. I'm going to go get groceries and leaving her alone with her baby. And there's the water on the table and she can't reach it because she just got her baby on the breast and doesn't know, you know, can't do that. Like, it's that complex that you really need someone with you all the time. You need to be mothered so you can mother your baby. And I wish we had that level of support in our culture. I wish... Everyone understood that. Home birth people often say, we want to just be alone for a while before we have visitors. But you've got two parents who don't know what they're doing with a new baby who doesn't speak their language. And they're, you know, and even if the partner does everything, they don't have a chance to rest and just cuddle up in the bed. We need to see the postpartum as a time, the weeks, maybe, month, maybe a month, month and a half, two months where you do nothing. It's enough work to just nurse your baby and sleep and to be supported. I think we'd have a lot less postpartum depression, a lot less breast infections, a lot less, you know, excessive bleeding and problems. All of these things that people think are sort of the normal postpartums, less in the way of sore nipples, all of these things that I think that if they, women were well-supported and they didn't try to do too much at, at one time, we know what can happen when you do too much. <laughs> Massive mastitis and a fever for a week. <laughs> I know. So you are retiring soon. I am. <laughs> oh, the end of this year. You have two more births? Two births to retirement. And I'm curious how it feels and kind of... I'm sure many, many people are like, Marcy, what's next? And you're like, uh. <laughs> uh, it's true. This is the first time in my life that I know that it's time to let go of one thing, but I don't know what I'm going toward. But that's a whole other thing because we don't talk about the aging process in our culture very much. And even though I feel 
totally vital and, you know, capable and interested in so many things. You strength train harder than most people I know. (laughs) Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And I'm going to go to that after this. And I do yoga. And I, a few years ago, I cycled 230 miles and all of, I, I feel good. But we don't have that conversation. You you know, you, when you're planning to have, uh, to grow a career, you have the conversation. When you're planning to build a family, you have that conversation. If you're going to go to grad school, you're building things. But when you stop your life's work and think what's next, it's a kind of an interesting open-ended conversation that I realized as I talked to my own contemporaries, most people aren't having and it's a real surprise to us. So I'm on that new journey, which is another life transition. I like life transitions. When I approached menopause, I had a menopause party. You know, I think that we need, we need in a in our culture that doesn't mark important times like, you know, older cultures, tribal cultures do. I think we need to mark these great moments that we we have. And I have to figure out how to mark this. Another party. Maybe this maybe this <laughs> podcast is part of my marking that transition. <laughs> You've always been in New York. Oh no. Oh. I was born and raised in the Bronx. Uh-huh. And then moved to <laughs> and then at seventeen I graduated high school and I moved to a commune in West Virginia. <laughs> And I lived there for two years, three months, and I learned about biodynamic gardening, and I learned about weaving and spinning wool, and I learned about Zen Buddhism and yoga. It was like my apprenticeship. And came back to New York for six months and then took off in a van cross-country with who would become my baby daddy. And we spent three days on a van going to San Francisco, and I got there and had my 20th birthday there, or maybe right before that, and lived there for 16 plus years. And it was there that I had my first child and went to college and went to nursing school and went to midwifery school and met the man who would become my husband and then traveled to Boston after midwifery school and had my first job, hospital job for five years. And then returned to New York in 1993 with a one-year-old. So I have two sons that are 19 years apart. And I had the great privilege to work at the maternity center, which was the very first birth center that ever was created. And that was in a beautiful, large mansion on 92nd and Madison. And that I stayed three years there and then moved on to help open Elizabeth Seton Childbearing Center, which I think they stayed open for six years. I was there for a couple of years and then started my home birth practice. So I made, I I went from the Bronx to Brooklyn, the long route. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting because I think you once told me that you were, because you're very active in the midwifery community in New York, in the city? No, I'm not that active. Oh, really? I'm not political and I'm not active. I just do my little thing. We meet. You meet, but you the, go to the meetings. The, the group, we, I did. I, I Right now, I'm not. I'm sort of weaning right. away. But yeah, I did. And and I think you had described yourself as the kind of like the more hippie. That's how they labeled me. Oh, that's how they <laughs> labeled you. Oh, I got it. I got it. They, they, said, they said that they called me the crunchy granola, but you know, midwife, but we all sort of had little nicknames or knew who might be drawn to different midwives based on their own personality. But you know, when I started, there were like three or four of us doing home birth and now there's over 20. Oh, wow. So when I talk about these little things, it was like a a little small group of us. I see. I see. I had described you to someone as the tough love home birth midwife. (laughs) You know what? I can, you, I can do tough love when I need to. Yeah. Yeah. And the people I've done that with, I don't just throw out tough love everywhere, you know. But when I have had to do that, which basically is someone is like freaking out and I'm having to, you know, get her back into her body and l- letting her lay claim to this moment, you know. So that's when I, 
I do the tough love, but they've all come back to me and said, thank you. I needed that, you know, myself included. (laughs) (laughs) See, I don't even remember that I'm doing tough love, but I, you know, I can, I think for my own first experience was, and I think it's hard to find the education unless you're really listening to lots of other women's stories of that. It was more hands-on that it was not so much hands-off going into my first, never having given birth, not knowing what a care provider does exactly, because I had not gone through the experience. I had read Ina May's books. I had educated myself, quote unquote, with the birth class. I had like a stack of books. Like I'm that kind of woman who feels empowered by just knowing, right? Some women are like, no, that freaks me out. I want to know that, you know, what, you know, where am I, where I'm at at labor. And I think, and maybe that there was, there was no education for me in my education. Like I pictured, you're going to laugh at me (laughs) that like in those moments where it felt like too much, a midwife would come and pat my hair. Oh, I know that's so sweet, but like, that's also in a realm of delusion. Like, no, but you can ask for that. We don't always know what a woman is feeling like she needs. Those are the kind of things that should come up in pregnancy, in sharing, you know, I'm having these thoughts and these are things that I think it would be wonderful. I found that women often tell their doulas things like this and they don't tell their midwife or certain things that that they end up treating the, the the doula like the sister and the uh, midwife like the mother or something. Uh, but I think, I mean, from you knowing me and through two births, I don't see myself as that kind of woman that's like, I need my head pat just when it's But tough, it's okay. You know? So did I do that or I didn't do that? Well, I had DJ doing counter pressure and the doula was <laughs> doing that. But, and for some reason, and this will totally get edited out, but for, I think in, mentally it translated as tough love. Which part? Just being hands off, like allowing me to ex- like go through the birth, to have labor, to work through labor. As compared to me being there, t- stroking your head. I don't know. I think through before my first birth, there was a subconscious thought of if it's more hands on, then it will be. And I never thought of beautiful birth, but you know it you don't know birth until you go through it. Like DJ had a tub with lights <laughs> that never got used, you know? Anyway. Well, you know, it's interesting because some of my sensibility around a woman in labor, it's kind of like that image of the artist who's painted something close up and then they have to back away to take a look at the larger picture. And sometimes as a midwife, in order to take in not only just if i'm if i'm hands on on the woman i'm really close up and sometimes i have to get back a little bit to take in i have to check on dj i have to check on your do uh, you the body language different things so sometimes i have to come back a little bit to feel that i might enter and then you know do this kind of thing back and forth but to be there and sitting and mis- doing the massaging and i can do that I've seen people who weren't doing it quite right and I put my hands right there and, you know, but then I feel like my job is to help facilitate like your partner to say, this is how you do it. Feel my hands and do that. And then I'll step away. It's kind of like what you do. Maybe that's a maternal thing. It's like when you, when you teach your kids a skill and you want them to be able to do it and you back away and watch them as they know how to continue, you know, or they start walking and then they fall as a toddler and then they walk stronger and you kind of, you know, little by little, they move further away from you, the more capable they are to move. It's a little like that. And then just having spoken to a lot of women in my practice, I think that there's a image, maybe it's a cultural thing of like, your midwife might be your everything versus the orchestrator or the facilitator, right? Of that, like stepping back and let me, right? Sometimes it's almost seen as like my midwife is going to, I don't know, be my everything. That's a little bit of a myth. And I, I will own part of that 
with the early rent part of the early renaissance of midwives that we did feel like we would be everyone's everything we love women we will be there for you a hundred percent and there was in the early 70s there was a lot more of that you know i will do everything for you and maybe it's because i'm a mom of older kids maybe because of the life i've lived but I think in some ways I see this is not about me anymore. And I've seen it with doulas. I've seen doulas. I had one relatively new doula who was with a woman and was like, you know, sitting right in front of her like this. Except the woman had a partner who was wandering around the house. And I had to go to the doula and say, I said to her, my choice of words, you are not that important. (laughs) Get, Get the partner together with her. And she had to back away, and we we got the couple into a shower together so they could have some time and intimacy and that kind of thing. So I think sometimes even birth workers, especially newer ones, they're so excited about it that they 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 feel like they value the woman and see her as important, but feel like everything that they do is going to be of service to her and don't always know how to step back. You know, because sometimes a doula can do more by cooking a meal than rubbing a woman's back, depending on who else is there, right? You know, as I'm winding down my career, I feel like I'm not that important. The families may feel differently, but I feel like what I'm, what's important is that I hold space so they can do what they know how to do, even though they don't know that they know how to do it. That every woman knows how to give birth even before she gives birth. Her body knows how to do it. And I had one of my midwifery teachers, I remember being a student of hers, and she sat in the corner knitting. And I was like a kid, you know, I was there trying to be in charge of the the woman in labor. And I would look at her like a kid, the mother, and she'd look up from her knitting and go, then go back to knitting. But couldn't that be seen as tough love? The, the <laughs> I don't see it as tough love. I actually see it as just the, the presence of is mm, enough. I see. And, you know, if, if your midwife is able to sit there and knit, you know things are going okay. Yeah. I went to a birth once with a student, a student midwife. And the woman was in the birth tub with a relatively new doula who was just right there. So I was, it was the same room. I lay down and I closed my eyes. And out of the side of my eyes, I saw the student do the same thing. And I got up and I said, no, 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 you can't do that. Because when I go to sleep, I'm half awake and I am aware of everything that's going on. When you go to sleep, you're sleeping. You haven't been at enough births to be able to do that. You have to somehow be present and see what's happening, you know. So I won't argue the fact that for you, that looks like tough love. For me, it's saying I'm being present, I'm holding space so that those here can feel safe and know that things are going okay. Yeah, I'll put my knitting down, I'll go up, I'll listen to the fetal heartbeat. But I think sometimes people will look to me for that reassurance that things are okay. But that unless the woman actually needs my hands... I don't have to be that up close. But I have been up close when I was a hospital midwife. So I was a fairly relatively new midwife a few years. And a woman came in in labor with her second baby. She was very active labor. But she was planning to give the baby up for adoption and open adoption. And the person who was her doula was the mother who was going to receive her baby. And she gets to the point where she's starting to push and she's starting to push, and nothing is happening. That baby isn't moving. It isn't moving at all. And I'm there, hospital, gowned, gloved, masked, because that's what we did then. And I just had a vibe. And I, I went up to her, and I whispered in her ear, talk about close up or a little distant. And I, I don't know where these words came from. I said, you don't have to let the baby go, but you do have to let the baby out. I think I had also asked the woman to leave the room, and she wasn't happy about that. But she left the room, and I whispered this, and one push, the baby was born. And this was in a group practice, so I didn't, I wrote my note, finished what I was doing, I left. Six weeks later, I asked my midwifery partners what happened to her. She didn't give the baby up. 
things like that, you know. So close up or a little apart, hands on, hands off. It's a real physicality kind of thing, but being present is the important part, whether you're up close or a little distant. If I'm just sitting there or I'm dozing or even my eyes closed, I am completely aware of what's happening. I don't tune out, you know. Mm -hmm. How much of birth is about letting go? It's all about letting go. <laughs> I don't think most women know that. Like, I mean, who haven't given birth. What are you doing at that point? You're, you're letting go of your baby, right? You're letting out your baby. You can't have tight muscles and release. It's, it's about release. It's about softening. That's why Ina May talks about when things feel hard for you to let go, make out with your partner. Because when you have a loose mouth, you're going to lose, you know, the other mouth is going to loosen too. So it's all about letting go. And that's why intellectualizing it is not useful. That's why I don't often tell women how dilated they are. Because if I say to them, oh, you're five, and I'm thinking, oh, that's great, and they're thinking, I'm only five. It really doesn't matter. Their work is to do the work of letting go. And I might see a dilation so I can better help them because if they're three, I might give them some herbs to go to sleep. And if they're five and things are moving quickly, I might just say, oh, let's get in the tub now or something like that. It's all about letting go. And even that's why I said when you take your classes, don't take notes. Once you're in labor, it's not intellectual anymore. Is there anything else that you wish women knew about birth as we wrap it up? Don't be afraid to have the conversations. I know we all have stories we've heard. Not everyone tells the story as it really was. It's what they took away. But find a way to be open to having the conversations about what birth is, can be. Because even if you choose to be in a hospital, and home isn't for everybody, you can still have a mindful birth surrounded by people who are loving. Allow yourself to explore these different possibilities. Amazing. Thank you. That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to Muscle Medicine Podcast on iTunes. And if you wanna share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends, or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys. So much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here.